0: I've been having a wonderful introduction to the guest today through our conversation. Her name is Rebecca, and she is a licensed clinical social worker. And I was asking her to explain to me exactly what that is because I'm not very familiar. The term is familiar to me, but I realized through our conversation that I don't really understand exactly what a social worker does and how that might differ from A coach like myself or a therapist, a psychologist. There's all of these different roles in which somebody can help others and address things like trauma, which will be part of the conversation today. So Rebecca, I'd love to begin with a better understanding of what it means to be a licensed clinical social worker. And as part of that, I'd like to hear what led you to this work How did you become one and what does that entail in your professional life? I love this question because I love being a social worker. So I love talking about
1: social work. Social work really is a profession that was born out of a desire to be of service to others. So it was really born out of volunteer work and working with the underserved and underprivileged, those who held a lot of Risk because of social variables like poverty and lack of access to care and education. And social work has, of course, evolved over many, many decades and is a very robust degree. So I have a master's in social work, I have a bachelor's in psychology, and I pursued psychology because when I went to my first psych class in like my freshman year of undergrad, something about psychology just made me light up inside. I grew up with a really wonderful family. My sister was very talented and gifted at many things. And she was like always coming home with awards and medals. And she was in all these gifted programs. And I never excelled at a whole lot when I was a kid. I wasn't great at any sports. I was kind of okay at music. I found that I was really good at partying in high school. Doing drugs and staying out late <laughs> and doing things I shouldn't have been doing. And so I got to undergrad and I took this psych class and I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. Like, this is magic. This makes sense to me. My great grandfather was a psychiatrist, which psychiatrists prescribe meds. They don't typically offer psychotherapy, though some are really highly trained and also offer therapy, but typically they're just prescribing. So my great-grandfather was a psychiatrist, and supposedly he was pen pals with Freud. Who knows if that's – we've never found evidence of that, but that's the story. And so I grew up in his home that when he passed away, he left my mom. And so I grew up in this house with all of these journals and really old, weird books on psychology like about hysteria and syphilis and ticks and – Carbon monoxide poisoning, just very strange things. And so I was always kind of bewildered by it. I don't think my great grandfather was a very good psychiatrist. I understand he was really grumpy and a very unpleasant, kind of crotchety man. So, not what I would consider to be a real healer, but maybe just his passion and his work inspired me a bit. And I carry that in my DNA. So, anyway, I go to undergrad, go to this first psych class, and I'm like, oh my God, this is it. This is what I want to do. And so pursued that degree. And then I knew I had to go on to get a master's in something because you can't do much with a bachelor's in psychology. There aren't many jobs available. So I was looking at some of my options and social work really stood out to me because as a social worker, there's so many things I can do. I can be a psychotherapist. I provide counseling. That's my big focus. And my specialty is trauma work and EMDR. But if I got sick of that, I could also go work as a lobbyist, or I could work with a group, a community grassroots organizing group. I could work with kids. I could work with adults. I could work for community-based programs. So I can do macro or micro kind of jobs with my degree. So there's a lot of diversity. And social workers are also very much focused on strengths. So all social workers are trained in strengths-based theory which strengths-based theory focuses on what's working well, even when there's so many things that are going wrong. And our field of counseling, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, is very much focused on what's not working. It's very much focused on pathology. And social work, of course, is going to look at what's not working, but it's also going to look at what is working And we also take a systems approach. So we don't just look at the individual, but we look at their environment. We look at their cultural background. We look at their family history. We look at their access to fair education and healthcare and what their social circles look like and who their friends are. And we really look at the entire individual. And so those were things that really drew me to social work, the the diversity of the degree, the focus on strengths and learning to look at the big picture as well as the very zoomed in picture.
0: I really appreciate that perspective, that approach. And it makes me wonder how many systems are not guided by that type of approach. We talked a little bit about the DSM and some of the limitations. And I was sharing with you how It feels a little strange to me that in 2023, there maybe still be some sort of a domination of a traditional way of viewing, or maybe even outdated might be a better terminology. You mentioned your grandfather, right, who was a psychiatrist. And so much has changed, at least since my grandfather was around. He passed in 2016. And so he would have been well over 100 at this point. And just thinking in his lifetime, how much changed and in my lifetime, how much has changed. And yet it seems like healthcare, including mental health, and even our societal perspectives on health and mental health, physical health, mental health, the whole holistic viewpoint, it's not always taken into consideration somebody's background. We have a tendency to lump things together. We have a tendency to use biases. And I think we can benefit even as individuals taking a more systems-based approach like you do to understand people and maybe to be more curious and put less assumptions. And especially when it comes to trauma, being trauma-informed. And I would love to hear from you, Rebecca, what it means to be trauma-informed and not just systems-based approach to things, but when you incorporate the fact that many people have experienced some form of trauma, I assume most perhaps, maybe even everyone has experienced trauma because it is a little relative to each of our lives.
1: Yeah. I think that we could say that everyone does have something traumatic that they've lived through. Our Western approach to understanding trauma is often defined by the event rather than the response, and that's flipped. We should be looking at what was that individual's neurobiological response to the event, and was it a response in which the nervous system is expressing extreme stress or fear or terror? And that would be considered traumatic then. So it's more about the response than the event. Because you and I could go through the same exact thing that maybe an average person would consider to be traumatic, but one of us might go on to develop PTSD and the other one doesn't. And that's due to a lot of different factors of nature and nurture. But maybe one of us went through the experience and we didn't have a huge reaction. We didn't feel overwhelming terror or fear. And the other one of us did. And so when we try and put a label on something as that is traumatic, yes, there are very evident things that most of us would agree that is like acute trauma, like combat, sexual assault, a physical assault, surviving a horrific natural disaster, seeing something really traumatic happen to someone else. Those are all very traumatic experiences that all of us would probably have a pretty significant response to in our nervous system. But what we know from the research is that what tends to be more hurtful and disastrous to us are multiple small events that cause us a lot of stress versus surviving just one catastrophic event and the rest of your life being fine. So it's kind of like the effect of a thousand paper cuts.
0: That feels like such an important perspective to have. And I wish that more individuals were trauma-informed. And my hope is that as a society, we can become more aware. Maybe we are slowly getting there. I think, well, it feels to me that we're becoming more mindful of factors like racism. Certainly, I've had an awakening in, in just the past three years that I had the privilege of ignorance in my life being a white woman. I really didn't realize the context in which many people were suffering. And my personal interest in psychology, mental health, well being has given me opportunities to learn these things. And I wonder if people outside of those spaces are growing their own awareness. And I would hope for that, but it, it feels like it's still a bit of a barrier because if you don't have the personal interest or the experience, You may also have the privilege of not understanding something like trauma. And yet, the way that you just described it, it's likely that the most, if not all, people have had their own version of trauma, these traumatic events, these multiple small events, as you said. So it kind of surprises me that there seems to be some big gaps in compassion towards one another.
1: Oh, yeah, there definitely are. Trauma-informed care is essentially just recognizing everybody's got their own shit and to be nice. Like, if I could just synthesize what trauma-informed care is, that's it. We've all got our own shit and just be nice to each other because you have no idea what the other person is bringing. And we live in a patriarchal society that is founded in white supremacy. And so, of course, our definitions of trauma are going to be really limited Yes, of course, racism is a traumatic experience and sexism and feeling like you're not safe to live in this country or in your life because of your body or because of who you love or because of the color of your skin or because of who you worship throughout the day. And to continuously get these messages that you are unworthy because of your body or you are undeserving because of who you love or something is wrong with you, I would argue that those experiences are way more disastrously impactful on a person because that's a long lifetime of toxic messages that you are soaking up at a cellular level from what you see in movies to TV shows to what you read in books and magazines and what you see is this is what's right. And if you don't fit this mold, then you are wrong. And we can understand those forms of trauma to contribute to the presentation of what we refer to in the field of traumatology as complex trauma. And complex trauma is really the outcome of a lot of wear and tear on your nervous system over a very long period of time, typically starting in childhood. And even when we talk about complex trauma, we're often thinking of Oh, you grew up in a really abusive household, or you grew up with continuous sexual abuse, or you grew up around a lot of domestic violence or drug or alcohol abuse. But we don't still, we fail to consider growing up in poverty, growing up in a society or in in an environment, in a community where you continuously feel unsafe because of gang violence or because uh, it's just a really unsafe community that doesn't have its needs provided for that's traumatic. And then we add on the generational trauma component to that of, if that's how you grew up, how did your parents grow up? And how did your great-grandparents grow up? And how did your great-great-grandparents grow up? And then we kind of get into the study of how generational trauma can impact us. And generational trauma can stay with us for a very long time. That's getting into a really deep level of kind of trauma (laughs) conversations. But our kind of societal view of trauma is so narrow. It's no wonder that we are really behind the curve in kind of advancing our techniques and approaches to helping people heal. Gun violence is traumatic. The number one killer of children in the United States is guns. And to live in a country where that's just accepted as that's okay, I'm really worried about how that is going to impact Kids throughout their lifetime, because you're growing up with these messages of it's not safe, it's not safe to learn, it's not safe to go to school. And I need to constantly be hyper vigilant of this very real threat to my
0: life. It's heavy, but it feels incredibly important to understand and explore. And I'm grateful for your awareness of these things. I mean, I find myself wanting to seek them out more as dark as it. Can feel, I don't want to stay in that place of privileged ignorance, like I said, and feel like sometimes opening my eyes to it, it can be very horrific and uncomfortable. And there are a lot of things that are easy to turn a blind eye to if they don't affect us directly. But to me, well being is not just about ourselves as the individual, it's the ripple effect that all of us have on one another. And It doesn't feel fair or just for me to feel well and for somebody who might live across the street from me to be in a completely different situation based on these circumstances. And they might not be within my control, but if I can at least be aware of them, maybe there can be some shifts that I can take that could have a ripple effect on them and Sometimes I wonder what the starting place is. So I'm curious for you, Rebecca. I mean, there's certainly all these different angles that we can come at it, but what are some of the places that we can begin to do this healing work for ourselves and also for others? What do you see being effective starting points? That's a tricky question.
1: (laughs) What was just coming to my mind is, so I'm also a Yogi, I've been practicing yoga since I was 15 years old. Yoga has literally and emotionally, physically and emotionally saved my life a couple of times. And in yoga, and also I've taken a number of Buddhism classes. I pretty regularly attend Buddhism courses with this wonderful meditation training center. And one of the things that I've learned through those practices that's easier said than done is learning to not look away from suffering. That doesn't mean that you're on the highway passing a car accident. And so everybody slows down and causes a traffic jam because everybody wants to be voyeuristic and see what happened. <laughs> but as human beings, it's our natural tendency to want to look away and avoid that which hurts. And so when we see someone else or a group of people suffering and we feel powerless to it, on some level, that is our way to cope with it. I don't feel like I can do anything about this, which there's a lot of existential crises that we face as human beings, from climate change to gun violence to political unrest, and that we do feel very powerless around. So one of our tactics is to avoid, just like you probably try to avoid putting your hand on a hot stove because it's going to burn you. And so we avoid, it keeps us alive. You're still here because you've avoided things that have hurt or that could potentially significantly harm you. But sometimes we just default to that avoidance response and what it does is it it isolates groups of people who are being harmed because now we're not speaking up because we're so stuck in our powerlessness and we're turning away rather than turning towards even if there isn't something that you individually can do to end racism or that you individually can do to end climate change. But how can we still be present in a compassionate way with our suffering and with the suffering of others? And that's really, really hard to do. It's not easy to do. And I also don't want to say, like, don't ever get out of the pool and catch your breath. Like, it's okay to take breaks sometimes. Like, we all have to get out of the pool of shit to stay afloat. But are you turning away in a manner that abandons your fellow humans and leaves them to the wolves? And that would be the thing not to do, <laughs> in my, as I would argue.
0: Thank you for that. It's really resonating with me today. I am preparing a talk for tomorrow and I feel very called to speak about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I feel a lot of ignorance around it, but ignorance is kind of a key word. I'm trying to learn. There feels like so much to learn, so much to do. And yet I have this deep desire to contribute in some way. And one thing that came up for me is this question of, well, who am I to speak about something that I am feeling ignorant about? Who am I to speak about the experiences of others that I don't have? I mean, because of my privilege, I don't feel like I have a lot of experience or perspective, and yet I still have the desire to do something about it. And maybe the privilege is exactly why I should be speaking about something because this book that I've been reading pointed out that it's less risky for somebody with privilege to talk about some of these hard subjects because they're often in a place of not fearing their own safety. The book I'm reading right now is called Inclusion on Purpose and it's specifically about inclusion in the workplace. And the author points out that when someone such as a white person, or mainly, I guess, a white person with that privilege speaks out about racism, for example, they are probably not at a risk of being fired versus statistically, someone who's not white, person of color, could be at risk, much greater risk, at least, for being fired or for being penalized in some way just for asking for accommodations or inclusivity. And so the privilege actually gives you the opportunity to speak for someone who might not or might not be willing to do something because it's too risky for them. And I was very grateful for that perspective because it's like, okay, who am I is this question, but we can examine that from different angles and how we can contribute. And I'm, I'm curious if that resonates with you because I don't want to make assumptions, Rebecca, but you're white presenting you're a woman appearance-wise. Like, I would love for you to verbalize your identity instead of me making assumptions about that. But does that question ever come up for you? And how do you navigate through that?
1: Yeah. I am a white woman. I am married to a male. I identify as bisexual. And I think we all have to be mindful of what's my lane. What experience can I speak from? what experience can i not speak from and how can i use my privilege to create equity for others so in my one of my businesses case and co my training business we offer scholarships to bipoc clinicians and our scholarships are only available to bipoc clinicians i don't care what hardships you're experiencing i do but it's only for bipoc clinicians why because the field of education has not offered equal opportunities for people of color and BIPOC identities to pursue advanced degrees and to pursue advanced training with those degrees. And so it's one way that I can offer some equity to a field that has been incredibly unfair. And so I think when we can each look at, if you have privilege, how can you use your privilege to open doors for others? to offer your stage to others, to offer income to others, that's how we can explore the concept of equity. Because it's not a fair playing field. It hasn't been a fair playing field. And there's, it's not like the government's going to come in and say, here, we're going to make it all fair. Like That's up to each and every one of us to look at the ways that we can do that individually with the privilege that we do hold.
0: Beautifully said. You have quite a way with words that's very clarifying and helpful for me to navigate this challenging territory. That same book, Inclusion on Purpose, has some frameworks for navigating equity. And one of the first pieces of advice, and at least the framework I've gotten to so far since I haven't finished the book, was to get uncomfortable, (laughs) to be uncomfortable, and, of course, I'm very much in alignment with that terminology due to this podcast, but essentially, it was saying like "This is uncomfortable, this is hard," and that's just the first step in approaching this, and then it goes into things like raising awareness and on and on and I'm grateful for people like you, Rebecca, who are willing to sit in that discomfort to acknowledge the discomfort and to do it anyways, but also do it with so much grace as as you're approaching this. This clearly isn't something new for you. This is something it seems like you've spent a lot of time reflecting on. This is integrated into your work and your way of operating. And you mentioned, I believe, the uh, CPTSD or or maybe it was the complex trauma. I'm curious, is there a difference between complex trauma and CPTSD? They're one in the same. Got it. Could you describe more of what that is exactly. We've touched upon a lot of trauma, but PTSD specifically, post traumatic stress disorder, what, with the C being complex, what makes it complex? Yeah. Well, how does somebody C- know if they've experienced that or somebody else has experienced it? CPTSD,
1: complex PTSD. We like all these acronyms in the field of counseling and psychotherapy. <laughs> so CPTSD is just another acronym. Complex PTSD is like PTSD on steroids. It mimics all of the symptoms of PTSD, but the level of functional impairment is much more pronounced. Complex PTSD also often comes with pretty significant disturbances in interpersonal relationships. So there's a lot of dysregulation in the nervous system. People tend to struggle with a lot of distorted, kind of self talk and cognition, so really poor self-esteem, believing I'm not worthy, I'm not lovable, I'm broken, I'm deficient, I don't deserve good things. There's higher correlations with the emergence of addictions and high-risk behaviors like truancy and involvement in the legal system. And complex PTSD is much more challenging to treat than PTSD because it's just more complex but it's very much possible. And this is in the field of psychotherapy, the DSM. We were kind of chatting before we jumped on. The DSM, which is what insurance companies require psychotherapists to use to diagnose and bill sessions for, is based on what looks normal for white men. The DSM is not really... Diagnoses in that manual are not really based in research. They look at specific symptoms and put symptoms into boxes and then say, based on these symptoms that you check off, this is your diagnosis. And here's the prescribed treatment. So it's a very colonized, westernized approach to healing that doesn't necessarily look at how do we involve community and family and things outside of just strict psychotherapy and medications to treat symptoms. And so the DSM does not include complex PTSD. It's been on the table for years now with multiple trauma gurus and experts advocating for the addition of a diagnosis of complex PTSD or developmental trauma disorder has also been offered kind of in place, which is more to encompass the severe impacts of trauma in childhood during prime years of development. And it's continuously gotten kicked out of being included in the DSM. Although research really clearly supports that complex PTSD, while it mirrors PTSD, it is a specific and a unique diagnosis
0: from PTSD. So
1: it's a little bit messed up. (laughs) The DSM is not very accurate.
0: (laughs) It is messed up. And it leads me back to these ideas that we have a lot of outdated perspectives not just on others but perhaps even ourselves it really depends on the care that you're receiving i've certainly have experienced a taste of that uh, recently trying to get to the bottom of a number of things medically for myself and recognizing like wow even with the insurance that i have which feels uh, pretty comprehensive even in los angeles where i could literally walk down the street to one of the most renowned hospitals and maybe the country, if not the world, like there's so many great practitioners in this city. And yet it either feels incredibly hard to figure out who to see, but it's also can be expensive. Even when you do have insurance, all the obstacles, I mean, the barriers to care are hard. And then within those systems, there still may be Obstacles and barriers, a doctor might not even be able to diagnose, prescribe, or give you a direction because of the constraints of their role and the systems that they're operating. I mean, to me, it's amazing for somebody to just be healthy and feel well. Like that, (laughs) the more I learn about all this, I'm like, it is a blessing. And perhaps the minority of people are in a, a well state. And that's something that I'm kind of looking at from a new lens recently. I'm curious, do you share that perspective? What has your work shifted within you and whether that's something recent or just over the course of your career and how you view the whole healthcare system in general?
1: I think that our healthcare system is in shambles. I just recently had surgery on my foot And it was a very mild, minor surgery, outpatient, but just the little pieces I had to navigate with that, it's just laughable. It's just absurd. The treatment I got, the lack of information I received, I got out of surgery. My doctor didn't even come talk to me to tell me what happened. I had no idea what he did exactly for two weeks until I saw him and I got my cast off. The whole time I was just thinking, this is not trauma-informed. And especially from the perspective of, I'm a woman. I am a sexual assault survivor. You put me to sleep. I woke up. You did something to my body. I have no idea what you did. Now, that didn't activate my trauma history. I've done a whole lot of healing (laughs) throughout the years. I've done a lot of EMDR. I've done a lot of therapy, lots of Reiki and yoga and woo-woo and all the things, medications, you name it. But I could recognize if I hadn't done all that work, this would have been a prime trigger for me because it would have mimicked some of my trauma. I was literally asleep and unconscious and woke up to recognizing somebody has done something to my body. That's literally what happened to me in my sexual assault. So I think that our healthcare system is very much based on fixing the problem as quickly as possible with this little intervention time. So when you go to the doctor and they're in and out in five minutes, and they hardly talk to you. How could you actually get the information you need to prescribe me this or to offer this intervention? And so much of what we struggle with as human beings, there's so much suffering because of stress. It's all about stress. Most of the diagnoses of the DSM can go back to dysregulation that's held in the autonomic nervous system. And this is one of the reasons I love polyvagal theory, because polyvagal theory gives us like this very robust kind of user manual almost, for understanding how our autonomic nervous system functions. Your autonomic nervous system, you can think of as your automatic nervous system, your automatic nervous system. It just responds. It just reacts without your conscious awareness. And it's your autonomic nervous system that's responsible for those key kind of stress responses that we all know, fight, flight, freeze, and I'll add on collapse. Fight, flight, freeze, and collapse. And so when we're constantly inundated with these messages of what we should look like from social media and the world is about to implode again with whatever news cycle we're in and rush hour traffic and noisy environments and shootings and inflation and all of the societal unrest. And then you add in, and I'm arguing with my partner and I'm not sure how I'm going to pay the mortgage at the end of the month. That's a lot of stress for your nervous system to have to constantly be managing. And some of that is, I mean, we are not born to just live in Zen mode. If we were, we wouldn't have this nervous system that was designed to respond to stress. Stress isn't bad. When you go to the gym, you stress yourself out. But you do it to get fitter, to get toner, to get healthier. When you learn to drive, wasn't that stressful? Oh my gosh, so stressful learning to drive. But you do it for autonomy and independence. Going to grad school is super stressful, but you do it because you want that degree and you want to be of service to people. And so not all stress is bad. A lot of stress is really adaptive. It's about the dose and the length of time. So how big of a dose was that stressor and how long did it go on? And we were not necessarily designed to live in constant toxic stress, which is what a lot of us are experiencing. Like we have no ability to get out of the there's no opportunity to reset and recalibrate. And so your stress responses are meant to be short and temporary to get you through the stressor. And then you return to homeostasis and everything's working again in your body. But if you're constantly living in stress, your digestion gets all screwed up. Your immune system gets all messed up. Your heart rate is irregular. Your breathing is irregular. Your blood flow is irregular. Your endocrine system isn't working right. And those things can be out of whack temporarily to respond to a stressor, but they need to be able to reset. And when they don't get to do that, that's where we develop like these really chronic diseases. And so we know from, there's this wonderful study called the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And it was started in the early 2000s, late 1990s. And it really identified the correlation to adverse experiences in childhood And the development of really degenerative chronic health conditions like COPD and cancer and stroke and fibromyalgia and IBS and immunodeficiency diseases and arthritis and I mean all kinds of things that are really the outcome of your body living in a constant state of stress. And eventually what all that leads to is an early death. So we know from the research that stress, too much stress for too long kills It literally does, but yet we have a healthcare system that because it's founded in capitalism and it's not focused on preventative medicine, it still focuses on, let me provide an intervention as quick and as cheaply as possible and move on to the next person, never really addressing the issue at the root cause, which if we did do that, we would probably save a lot of money in the healthcare system because people wouldn't be coming in with these chronic diseases they would have gotten interventions and preventative care before things
0: turn into a five alarm fire. Wow. <laughs> Again, very grateful that you're speaking on on such an many important angles. You know, the capitalism side of it is something that I'm also awakening to and actually through this podcast and thanks to guests like yourself, I've learned so much about capitalism that I just Was blissfully ignorant of. And it doesn't really make sense to me because I have this belief that in order for an individual to be well, the society needs to be well, the community needs to be well. And I don't understand how or who's really benefiting from the capitalist mentality. Because when I think of capitalism, I often think of older white men, as you pointed out, that tends to be the people, quote, benefiting. And yet some of these powerful figures don't seem to be the most well mentally. They're struggling. Some of them have a lot of health conditions too. In fact, one of the books I was reading, I think the book Saving Time, which is a delightful read about even the capitalistic viewpoint on time and productivity and all this stuff. I think it was the author who pointed out how Donald Trump had this mindset that it wasn't even worth his time to exercise because he thought it was taking away the limited time he had in life or something. And, I, and however it was, I'm not phrasing it well, but I thought that's so odd. Like exercise, I believe has been proven <laughs> to benefit your health and thus probably extend your time on earth. So by not exercising, you might be shortening your life. And so that time wasted exercising is actually time investing in yourself. And so there's all these kind of outdated viewpoints. And when it comes to the healthcare system, like whoever is benefiting financially from it, I'm sure they would actually benefit more from better care because they would be impacted by the better care too. Their family members who are suffering, their extended family is suffering. I mean, like it all is interconnected in my viewpoint. So really, no one's benefiting from these systems in in the grand scheme of things. And so why is it that we still operate that way? It doesn't make any sense to me, but suppose, I guess, I'm so far removed from it, it might be impossible to, to understand why things are set up that way.
1: Yeah, I don't know that I could fully tell you the why either. I think it's due to generations and generations and many, many, many years of Just embodied violence and dissociation. And I agree that I think that there are many individuals that are part of the 1% and that make really big decisions that affect many, many people that are not healthy and well. There are plenty of rich people that we see in the news who I would not necessarily want their life, even though they may have a huge bank account, because they do not look like they're very happy or healthy. But I'm just thinking early in our conversation, talking about that practice of not looking away to pain and suffering. And when we learn to constantly look away, we learn to dissociate. And so I think that there's a real level of dissociation that can happen amongst individuals who get so focused on shareholders and the bottom line and profits. Profits over people. And we can lose some of our humanity in that. And I would argue from a compassionate stance that that's probably an outcome of things that have happened to those individuals as well. I am doubtful that those individuals grew up with this incredibly nurturing, healthy, loving, emotionally attuned parents and caregivers in their childhood. And they learn to embody these values of it's about striving for X, Y, and Z versus looking at striving for peace and happiness and contentment. And I don't innately believe that capitalism is bad. I am grateful that I can run a business and I can make choices to bring income into my business. But I think unchecked corporate capitalism is what's really dangerous because then it becomes very exploitative and it's about Power and control, which are all core principles at the heart of traumatic experiences. A loss of power, a loss of control, feelings of helplessness, and feelings of hopelessness and terror are all kind of the core components of what trauma is like. So I think that we have a very dissociated society. And to heal, we have to each focus on just healing ourselves. Like when you're on the airplane and they say, If these things pop out of the ceiling, put on your mask first so that you don't pass out. Yeah, you have to put your own mask on first because if you can't develop enough resiliency in your nervous system to stay buoyant, you're just going to succumb to all of the crap that's out there. And it, it feels like a constant struggle. It's a constant battle to build health and wellness in your nervous system but it's not impossible because we have these amazing nervous systems that can rewire, that can heal. We are adaptive creatures. We're incredibly resilient. We are incredibly intelligent. And so all of the resources you need are already within your body. And so when we look within to how can I befriend my nervous system as my best friend, my nervous system is my superpower. Instead of looking out towards, oh, I need to buy this thing that social media recommended, or I need to spend a bazillion dollars on this really awesome therapist that I've gotten. Yeah, that can all be really helpful, but don't diminish that the greatest healer you will ever have in your life is within
0: you. Another wonderful gem of wisdom that leads me to wanting to learn more. You mentioned polyvagal therapy, and I'd love to know more about that as well as Assuming there's a difference between that and EMDR, EMDR, which I have some ignorance around. I've heard of EMDR. I think I've heard of polyvagal theory, but I would struggle to define either. And I'd love to understand how they're used, when they're used, who benefits from them. How do you navigate that journey of deciding, is this for me? Do I want to try it? How do you find someone? A bunch of questions in there, but first, what are they and how does someone benefit from each of them?
1: Yeah. So let me start with one and then I'll go to the other. So the first one, polyvagal theory. Polyvagal theory is not a therapy specifically. It's a model. It's kind of like trauma-informed care and that it's a model of this is how we can understand this concept and this is what you do with it. So polyvagal theory was developed by Stephen Porges over many decades of his research. And polyvagal theory really describes how your automatic nervous system functions and what your autonomic nervous system needs to feel safe and to be healthy and well. So your autonomic nervous system is really governed by your vagus nerve. And your vagus nerve is the second longest nerve in your body, second to your sciatic nerve vagus stands for wanderer because this nerve like has wanderlust. It really gets around. It goes to so many places in your body. So your vagus nerve connects to your eyes and your face, connects to your inner ear. It connects to your throat. It connects to your heart and your lungs and all of the viscera within your abdominal cavity. So when your vagus nerve gets activated in response to danger. So your nervous system perceives something to be dangerous. It will activate your autonomic nervous system into a fight response, a flee response, a freeze response, or a shut it down and collapse response. Based on what your autonomic nervous system perceives, this is what is most likely going to help me survive this situation. So for example, let's say you were out for a walk in the woods and all of a sudden there's this rustling next to you and your nervous system kicks up and is like oh my gosh what's that and you look over you look for this rustling is that a bear is it a rabid raccoon your nervous system immediately will activate probably hopefully giving you a lot of energy to maybe flee or fight you might freeze for a moment as you're like what is that and then all of a sudden this adorable little kitten prances out of the bushes and comes up to you and meows and your nervous system's like that's not dangerous and so all of a sudden you calm down inside you pick up this little kitty and now you have a new pet, right? So all of those responses from the moment you were startled, what is that rustling sound to now I'm like ready to run or I'm frozen. What is that to, oh, there's no danger. I'm going to calm down. That was all responsible of from your vagus nerve. Your vagus nerve was driving all of those pieces as it kind of activated your autonomic nervous system to respond in certain ways. Polyvagal theory is called poly polyvagal because there are three branches of the autonomic nervous system that that vagus nerve helps to kind of mediate and manage. So that is polyvagal theory in a nutshell. And the more we understand polyvagal theory, the better like you just make sense to yourself. Like you start to understand, oh, this is why I feel activated right now. I perceive something to be scary, or this is what I need to feel safe and calm. So polyvagal theory is something you can certainly do some research on and learn on your own. There's a ton of information out there about polyvagal theory. And a lot of therapists are now trained or pursuing training in polyvagal theory because it's such a helpful framework for understanding trauma and trauma responses. So EMDR is an actual therapy. So EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. It's a really long name, so we just call it EMDR, another acronym. So EMDR was discovered by a psychologist named Francine Shapiro in the late 80s, and she was walking through the park one day. She was thinking about something that was really upsetting to her, and as she was thinking about this thing that was bothering her, her eyes started moving back and forth. I think she was like watching some squirrels, or she was just like looking around, and her eyes started moving back and forth kind of quickly. And she paused and she was like, I feel better about that thing I was thinking about. Is that because my eyes were going back and forth when I was thinking about this thing? I mean, what an incredibly observant woman, right? So she was a psychologist. So she had all these therapist friends. So she was like, come here, friend. Think about something that bothers you and follow my fingers. So she started testing this out on her friends. And they all reported, you know, Francine, I feel better about that thing. As you waved your fingers in front of me. Now, of course, I know many readers are like, what? That sounds absurd. This is ridiculous. You're going to wave your fingers in front of me like, what is this magic? So Francine went on to do a whole lot of research and she developed a whole therapeutic model. And EMDR is evidence-based for trauma and PTSD. That means there's a lot of research that supports its effectiveness of reducing or completely eliminating symptoms associated with PTSD and trauma. And so what we know eye movements are doing, or rather now we just call it bilateral stimulation because we don't always just use eye movement. Sometimes it's about tapping back and forth like so on your shoulders or tapping back and forth on your legs, or there are these little buzzers that kind of buzz back and forth in your hands bilaterally. Or we can also listen to alternating tones, so bilateral tones. So when we think about a traumatic or an upsetting experience that is still haunting us present day, that's kind of the basis of EMDR. We look for experiences that are stuck and causing yuck. This experience was super stressful. It was really scary. It was upsetting and it's stuck in my nervous system. And I'm constantly having these like reactive symptoms associated with it. This memory is stuck and causing yuck. So when we add bilateral stimulation, when a client is with their therapist receiving this therapy, people need to be trained in, you can't do EMDR on yourself. The bilateral stimulation is just a natural way that the nervous system processes information. We are bilateral beings. We tend to, when you walk into a new room, you kind of look around bilaterally. Most cultures read bilaterally. Think about if you've ever had a problem, you were kind of stuck on and you went for a walk and all of a sudden you felt better, or you went for a run, you're getting bilateral then. And so bilateral stimulation helps to Believe kind of break a really upsetting memory, break it, meaning it kind of loses its emotionality. And it helps your nervous system to kind of reappraise or reassess the experience from present day. So let's say, for example, you were thinking about a sexual assault and you were receiving EMDR for that. Your nervous system may be stuck in I'm not safe. This is dangerous. I'm dirty. I'm bad. I'm not worthy. But if you're safe with your therapist and you're safe present day, when your nervous system reassesses that experience, you may instead walk away with, that was then and this is now and I survived. It is over. You know what? I did try and fight back. You know what? I am a good and deserving person. It's my perpetrator that's the piece of crap, right? And so it helps your nervous system to kind of create a new narrative, to heal from that experience. In just a natural way that your biology already works. So I love blending polyvagal theory and EMDR, and that's what my new book is focused on. Because both of those therapies are what I call neuro-informed approaches to healing. We're focused on the nervous system and not the diagnosis or the DSM or what white-bodied people say is the way to do or how to heal. It's really about how does this person's unique neurobiology work, and how can I understand. Their' symptoms and forms of suffering through the perspective of understanding their nervous system.
0: I continue to feel so impressed, Rebecca, with how you articulate all of this complexity, because it just makes so much sense to me. <laughs> Since I heard of EMDR, I really I think I started paying more attention to it. My therapist expressed that it could be something worth me trying, and um, I haven't tried it yet. However, I have tried tapping. And I'm curious, since you mentioned the tapping, you said EMDR, you can't do it to yourself, but tapping you can do to yourself. So what is the difference? Is tapping based on EMDR or is it something completely separate?
1: There are some, uh, so I think you're referring to EFT, emotionally focused. Yeah. Or no, sorry. That's the couple's work. There's two EFT therapies out there. There's emotionally focused yeah. therapy and then there's EFT, which is the tapping piece. So right, right. tapping you tend to tap on kind of key acupressure points on the top of your head and your face and underneath your chin and your and so EFT and EMDR share some similarities in their conceptual framework but they are different. So an EFT you can use EFT as a self-help technique. And one of my very good friends is an EFT therapist and she's done some EFT with me and taught me a couple of things. But they're not one and the same. So in EMDR, you're tapping or you're receiving bilateral stimulation in a bit of a different framework than EFT. So EFT is typically you're tapping and you're kind of repeating these kind of positive mantras to yourself or positive statements. And EMDR, you're not adding necessarily those positive statements. You're really allowing your nervous system to digest the experience. So when you receive EMDR and you add bilateral stimulation, you might experience. Other memories, you might experience other kind of frames of the same memory. You might experience thoughts and feelings or body sensations, some of that, all of that. It's really different for each individual. But at some point in EMDR, it might take one session, it might take multiple sessions to work through an experience. There is this real resolution where all of a sudden the memory loses its emotionality, its kind of distressing emotions. And you're left with either kind of positive, adaptive emotions and experiences and insights, or it just kind of feels neutral. Like people say sometimes, I just can't really see it and I just don't feel it anymore. It's just kind of done. Or sometimes people really say, oh my gosh, I did fight back. I am so strong. I am so proud of myself. So the process of how we deliver the therapy is a bit different between EMDR and EFT. And the reason I don't recommend doing EMDR on yourself, there are apps out there, there are books out there that are like, do EMDR on yourself. Highly discourage it. You really need a trained therapist. EMDR training is 50 hours of training. So my business trains psychotherapists in training in EMDR, and it's 50 hours. So to imagine you can supplement just an app for 50 hours of training on top of what a therapist already goes through to just become a therapist there's a lot of depth to it and it either doesn't work or sometimes some really big stuff can get activated if you do it on your own. And then you're like, Oh, I really need some help. (laughs) I'm having a really big
0: reaction to this. Thank you for clarifying that. It's really helping me understand it. And it's piqued my interest. Although I believe my therapist said that he through our therapy has Come to the current conclusion that I don't have a major traumatic event at the moment, luckily, (laughs) that would, gosh, I don't even know how to put this. Essentially, it sounded like I'd worked enough through my most recent traumatic event and he didn't feel like I needed to do EMDR. But as you were talking about it, I still experience some of the fight or flight response. My current thing that I'm still trying to get to the bottom of is a sleep issue in which i have a tendency to sleepwalk and it feels like my nervous system gets activated but i don't know what's activating it so i'm curious can emdr work if you don't have knowledge of the root of that response what if there's trauma like my big question is like did something traumatic happen to me or was it like passed down through the generations somehow like through epigenetics epigenetics what essentially can you do emdr without knowing the specific of event or trauma or what's going on yes
1: emdr is symptom based not necessarily event based or diagnosis based and so sometimes i find therapists who are emdr trained are looking for but do you have trauma well as i just defined what trauma is earlier yeah Everybody does. (laughs) Do you have toxic stress in your life is maybe a different way to look at it. And some of us go to therapy very clearly knowing I had this huge event. That's what seems to be driving my symptoms. This is what we want to work on. That is a very small portion of people who come to therapy because the way that adverse experiences, toxic stress stressors are stored in our brain is implicit And so implicit memories are like your felt sense of an experience. You don't necessarily have explicit declarative memory of it. So an example of implicit memory is like the smell of cut grass. It's just like something that you know, but it's hard for you to explain to me. You could probably try to. Or when a song comes on that you're like, I haven't heard this song in a decade, but you know all of the words. That's an implicit memory. It's out of your conscious awareness, but it's still there. Versus if I said, give me directions to your nearest grocery store, that's explicit declarative memory. You could actually tell me that. And so trauma memories, toxic stress is stored implicitly. And so most of us, when we're suffering from toxic stress, it can be like a mind. We're like, I don't know exactly why I feel the way I do, but I feel terrible. What's wrong with me? because I didn't go through combat or I haven't been sexually assaulted. I didn't have a terrible childhood. What is wrong with me? And so what's more useful is to focus on the symptoms. And so if you were my client, I would work with you to explore your symptoms and use your symptoms to trace back to the experience that seems to be driving them. And so there's ways that we do that in EMDR therapy, which is another reason you want to go to a therapist who's highly trained, because there's ways that we can kind of be a detective with your nervous system using your symptoms as like the little crumbles on <laughs> the path to find what is that memory about or what is the memory that we need to target. So, you can use EMDR if you were anesthetized, if you were unconscious. We can use EMDR for pre verbal memories. We can use EMDR for generational trauma. One of, I've done EMDR many, many times in my life. I was trained in EMDR in 2006 and have had. Lots of EMDR throughout my life for many different things, for huge, big traumas, from my father ending his life by suicide a couple of years ago, to sexual assault, to a domestic violence relationship, to smaller things like a toxic work environment that I was trying to figure out how to leave. When my husband and I first started dating, my husband's a big climber and a big mountaineer. He likes to do all the hard stuff and like wake up at two in the morning to get on a trail. And I'm like, meh. Let's go to the yoga festival. But when we first started dating, he likes to go to the gym and climb, and he wanted me to become a climber. So he wanted me to go to the gym with him. And I'm okay going to the climbing gym every now and then, but I don't love it. And so we'd go to the climbing gym, and as I was in the climbing gym, I would just notice I would kind of shrink inside. I was noticing I was having like this stress response to being in the climbing gym, where all of a sudden I would just feel like really little, and I'd feel really insecure And I'd feel really self-conscious and really incapable. And there was one day we were in the gym and I was just like, what is this about? Because I don't feel small and insecure otherwise in my life. Like something is, I'm getting triggered in the climbing gym. What's happening? So I thought, I think EMDR could help with this. I don't know what this is about, but let me go get some. So I went and got some EMDR on it. And what it went back to, what those symptoms connected to were my memories of being a gymnast. So my sister and I were both gymnasts growing up, and my sister was really good at gymnastics, and I was not very good. And she came home with all the medals and all the trophies, and I just kind of did it as a hobby, and she kicked butt at it. And it was during a time in my life where I really hadn't found what I was really good at, so it left me feeling like I wasn't good enough. And I did not have really aggressive parents who were like, you must be the best gymnast. My parents were like, do you, whatever, you know, (laughs) like whatever makes you happy. So that wasn't traumatic. But when I was 13 years old, it was stressful. And so when I was in the gym, a climbing gym feels very similar to an actual gymnasium, very similar structures and spaces. The sounds are similar. The smells are similar. The sensation of chalk on your hands. That was a big trigger for me. All of the like ropes and holds are all really rough, just like the balance beam and the bars and the vault. And so my nervous system was perceiving, here's polyvagal theory. My nervous system was perceiving these like similar sensory experiences that reminded it like, oh, we're 13 years old again, and you're in gymnastics. And so what happened inside? All of a sudden I felt 13 years old and I felt all that stuff from when I was 13 years old, even though at that time I was in my 30s. And I was in a climbing gym, but because that memory was stored implicitly, even as a therapist at the time, I didn't put that together. I didn't know what that was about. So I processed through that, went back to the climbing gym. I never fell in love with climbing. I'm still like, let's just go to the yoga festival. But I didn't have this visceral reaction going to the climbing gym. I didn't go dreading it and getting really triggered. I could just like, "Eh, I don't love this, but I'm okay. So that's the power of EMDR and how sneaky how sneaky implicit memory can be.
0: What a great story. I felt like right there with you. I've never actually even been in a climbing gym, but I too had my own set of stress as a kid trying to do gymnastics. So you started bringing up all these memories for me and I, that's the power of stories. Beautiful examples. Even the cut grass. There's a a nice way of connecting to these experiences, even if they're just similar. And it's really piqued my interest in EMDR. Thanks to you, I, I actually really want to try it. I can't wait to talk to my therapist about it and explore it more and figure out the next steps for me. And and speaking of next steps, Rebecca, as we begin to wrap up the episode, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about your book or, and or the next steps for somebody who's been listening to this episode and they're interested in you and want to get in touch, want to learn more from you. What are the next steps and and where could somebody begin after listening to this episode?
1: Yeah. So you can connect with me on my website, RebeccaCase.com. My last name is spelled with a K, K-A-S-E. The book I recently wrote It's a very technical book. So unless you're a psychotherapist, it might not be a great read for you. It's really focused on how to integrate polyvagal theory into EMDR. So the name of the book is Polyvagal Informed EMDR, A Neuro-Informed Approach to Healing. If you're really interested in it and you love to read therapy books, even if you're not a therapist, half of the book will be very fitting for you and you'll probably still love it because it's about polyvagal theory. I am working on another book called The Polyvagal Solution which is a self-help book that will be available to anyone that will be coming out in 2024. And that will be full of information for understanding polyvagal theory and how do you embrace it in your own life. And then if you are a therapist and you're interested in getting EMDR trained, and also learning polyvagal theory at the same time you can catch me at case and co which is my training business and so we offer emdr training basic training and advanced training on specialty topics like emdr with disordered eating emdr and dissociation emdr and addictions we have a lot of courses and we offer a lot of consultation for therapists who are just looking to understand how to integrate all of these techniques into their practice and we really value creating inclusive, inclusive learning environments. And our mantra is shame-free spaces for learning. Because as we've talked so much about the patriarchy and capitalism and white supremacy, all of those values are embedded in our academia, our field of academia. And too often, the world of academic training is riddled with uh, shame. And this is how you must do this. And this is the intervention and you must provide it like this. And so we really believe in embracing the flexibility of the nervous system and how everyone is unique and how to harness our clients' strengths as the greatest powers and tools in their healing
0: process. It's such wonderful, important work that you do. And for the listener, I'll make it easy on you to take that next step. So there are two places you can find those links. One is in the description right here on your podcast player. Most podcast players, at least, you can click see more. You can look underneath the episode and there'll be a description with a link to Rebecca's website, as well as a link to the full blog post which is based on the transcript of this episode, which will have links to everything, any book that we mentioned, various resources. There's a resource section of just the links at the end, along with all of Rebecca's contact information. So whatever resonates with you, you can find it there. And if you want to go directly to that, instead of looking in the description, you can visit wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Where you'll find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the show. Rebecca, you're so eloquent and you've done such a beautiful job covering complex topics and helping me understand, broadening my awareness, building upon ideas and thoughts and theories I have. And it's just been a really rich, nourishing conversation for me. So thank you so much for spending the time together and and sharing this with the listener too.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is a great conversation and I appreciate going deep. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome.